Join me again, if you would, in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, when you get there, if you'll stand, we'll just read some of these opening verses. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Let's pray again. Father, help us wrap our spiritual minds around this passage. Lord, not just the communication of information, but a real heart-level understanding it makes a massive difference in our life here below. Lord, we thank You for passages like this. They're so very precious. Illuminate us, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, I like to hike, but I am by no means uh, a mountain climber. I really don't have much desire to be one. I don't know how many times living in Alaska, how many... We would have family visit, and of course, uh, where we lived, everybody wanted to go see Mount McKinley or Denali. And of course, the, the, the mountain had a habit of being hidden most of the summer, and about the time all the tourists left is when the sky cleared up in October, and uh, we could see it all we wanted. It was kind of an amusing thing. Uh, but I don't know how many times I stood at one of the places I would go fishing periodically. Uh, if it was a clear day with clear visibility... There was the mountain ju just dominating the landscape. It's a majestic sight. Now, I could stand there in awe of that mountain, uh, but if somebody came up to me and said, hey, I want you to climb that tomorrow. Well, I suppose I'd have a couple internal reactions. One of those would be terror. How am I going to breathe up there? I'm not in that kind of shape. It's dangerous. But I suppose the other would be, even if I only make it part way, the view from up there has got to be staggering. I guess as a preacher, I feel both of those, particularly coming to a passage like this. I mean, to spend days digesting these words that we just read, now, there's this deep sense of human inability 
to grasp and express the loftiness of the concepts that are presented. But on the other hand, the joy that comes from just going part way up the mountain even is certainly worth the effort. I know for me, I was up late last night thinking through these words. Praising the Lord from the bottom of my soul for what He communicates through a passage like this. I really hope my feeble candle can pass on at least a little bit of that flame. I wonder if you were burdened in your soul to write a lengthy letter to a dear Christian friend. Uh, maybe, for sake of illustration, say it's a new believer who lives very far away. And uh, what you wanted for them was uh, success from God's perspective. Of course, we know God's definition of that word and the world's definition are vastly different. Uh, but what you wanted in your soul for this a new Christian was for them to see this world for transient like it is and to be as prepared as possible for the world which is to come. Uh, you sense the need to address the gravity of what it means to actually be a follower of Christ, a real disciple, in a world filled with deception and spiritual enemies. Uh, the fact that putting armor on was not mere hyperbole, that this is warfare. Uh, you wanted to give counsel regarding family and work relationships. How God places a premium on submission when that's rightly understood. And how there's no such thing as purely horizontal relationships. They're always presented in the New Testament as you and another person and the Lord. There are no purely horizontal relationships in the family or in the church or anywhere else. We always have to be thinking through the lens of how does God want me to relate to this person? Relationships without that dimension are very feeble indeed. Uh, you thought it would be helpful to tell this new Christian something about putting off the old man and putting on the new. The ongoing war with the indwelling sin nature that they still have. Uh, something about spiritual gifts and their usages and the importance of the local church and the sobering possibility of self-deception. Let no man deceive you with vain words. Now, if you were going to write a letter like that for a person's spiritual well-being, I wonder how you would start the letter. I mean, you could start it with warnings about the danger of failure. Uh, maybe you could highlight the blessings of obedience. You could start with statistics of how many who name the name of Christ uh, live like anything but Christians and the miseries involved in their families. Uh, you could talk about, uh, maybe you could reaffirm your love to them and let them know the things you're writing are motivated by genuine concern for their eternal welfare. Uh, maybe you could start with some kind of anecdote or story or illustration from a Christian biography to sort of arrest their attention and give them a practical example to strive after. Well, even improving from that, you could give a catalog of biblical commands. A reminder of all that's required of them. 
And friends, in all of those, there would be nothing wrong with that. But I think it's valid to begin these verses by asking the question, why is it that Paul does not begin this weighty epistle with any of those things? Besides the genuine desire for them to walk in grace and peace, the typical Pauline greeting, the only departure from that is the pastoral epistles, where it's grace, mercy, and peace. But what he does instead is break out in a doxology of praise directed to God the Father. I mean, in the opening verses of this letter, it's like he's speaking to the people of Ephesus almost indirectly. It's like he's invited them into his own personal worship service saying, now you sit here and listen while I praise the God of heaven. You can hear, but don't talk. That hymn of doxology that he's essentially writing goes all the way up through verse 14. Why would he do that? Friends, because the positional truths mentioned in a passage like this are the real foundation underneath the superstructure of the entire Christian life. I trust you know what I mean when I say positional truth, but in case somebody does not, let me explain. When I say positional truth, I'm talking about those things that God Himself does the very moment a soul trusts Christ. These things are irreversible, immovable, and eternal. They're truths that God declares about every single Christian person without exception. Those truths form the bedrock for the rest of the layers of our own walk with God. At least they should. You know, it was back in the 12th century that construction on a certain famous bell tower at a cathedral in Italy uh, began, and construction didn't move terribly fast on the project. It was over the next 199 years that this ornate and beautiful structure stretched up to its full height of 183 plus feet. Now still today, roughly 900 years after construction started, Uh, Tourists from all over the world still go to see this famous cathedral bell tower. Yes, its architecture is attractive. But it's famous for a reason the builders never intended. People don't go to the town of Pisa, Italy today to see the Tower of Pisa. They go to see the Leaning Tower of Pisa. The layers of the arches are impeccable. The symmetry and craftsmanship is outstanding, but the problem is beneath all of that. The problem is the foundation on one side of the building was too soft to support the weight of the building above, and gradually the entire structure over the centuries began to lean and lean and lean until modern-day architectural techniques stepped in and stopped the leaning. It's a little safe to stand under it now today. I'm not so sure it was centuries ago. But that's a fair picture of what happens in our Christian life when there is too much emphasis on what we do or don't do. And yes, that's important. That is very important. But what I hope we get in our minds is why Paul structures his epistles like this frequently is to lay foundation 
foundation, foundation. And then the Christian life in the practical sense is built on top of that. When we have too much of an emphasis on my duty, what I am doing, and friends, that has an importance. But when that is emphasized to to the neglect of what you are in Christ, it's a guarantee. The whole structure is going to start leaning precariously over time. I mean, if you survey the book of Ephesians, uh, what you'll find is it's a catalog of things that you and I deal with on a weekly or daily basis. Yes, it's more technological today, but our life isn't that much different. Tell me, how many days do you wake up during the week when there's really, frankly, no need for the armor of God? How many times this week did you realize uh, you didn't need to put off the old man anymore? That battle was over. How many of you found it takes absolutely no effort to biblically maintain family relationships? How many of you have found there's no need to maintain relationships in the local church? Or to separate from the paths of darkness out in the world? And on and on the list could go. My point is, this is an epistle that is ground level. These are things you and I deal with constantly, but here's my point. What is your general thought pattern at the commencement of each day? What is it meditating on? Do you wake up and you're dominated by failure? Your performance? What other people are doing? You're overwhelmed by the battle you have to face today and you're frankly intimidated by it. You're gripped with fear. Are you going to fail miserably and dishonor the Lord? Or, can you start your day like Paul starts this letter? With the lifting up of the eyes and the mind and the soul up to God in the heavenlies above all that happens on this earth. And to realize you as a Christian have a settled position that cannot change ever. It's never going away. Friends, it's only through the lens of positional truth that temporary battles are won on a consistent, ongoing basis. We were reading in our, if we've been reading as our family, in our family devotions through the book of Acts, and we got to Acts 16 last night. I love that chapter. Do you know the story of Philippi? Here's Paul and Silas. The clothes are torn off and they're publicly beaten and then they're locked in the stocks and they're sitting there in this dark cell. Now what's that I hear coming out of that cell? And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and gave thanks to God. Why? Because the ministry was so successful at that point? I know it was because Paul got that new promotion at work. Maybe it was because the jail cell was so comfortable. 
Maybe the food was good. No. Friends, we talked about it in Romans 8. What gives that disposition is having eyes to look unto the hills beyond this barren land and see that our position in Christ can never, ever, ever change. And real worship at its deepest level is going to come from positional truth which are rooted in the attributes of God. There are no shortcuts. Uh, by the way, one of the most critical teaching areas needed in discipleship for an actual new Christian is passages like this. One of the greatest needs is to get them off of feeling and experience and the things that throw them around like a cork in the ocean and to get their mind on positional truth. What God says about them. What He has made them. Unchangeably. Now the declarations in this passage extend up through verse 14 to all members of the Trinity. That's how we're going to examine it. We're only going to get through the first today. But here's what it's saying. The Christian person is chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. If you are in Christ, that's you. Chosen by the Father, beginning in verse 3. Notice that first statement. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word blessed is where we get the word eulogy from. It means to give thanks or praise or to speak well. Now, interestingly, interestingly enough, that exact Greek word is used eight times in the New Testament. And every time it's speaking about God the Father or the Lord Jesus Christ. And oftentimes what it is is a spontaneous burst of praise. It's like the Spirit is overwhelmed over the attributes of God and the stability that He's granted us by His sovereign mercy and grace. One example I think of is Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Here's Zacharias, father of John the Baptist. Hadn't, he's been rather quiet the last nine months as the angel struck him dumb. The son is born, they name him John, and all of a sudden his tongue is loosed, and what's the first words out of his mouth? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He hath visited and redeemed His people. So Paul is beginning this by saying, let's pause right now and deliberately magnify His wonderful name. Let's let everything and everybody fade into the background for a while. And once I see that clearly, then I can deal with everything else. But not until then. Now before we go much further, I think I need to point out the flashing sign that reads, For Christians Only. It's posted over the doorway of this text. Who are we talking about this morning? Notice verse 1. He's writing to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. You hear that description? Saints, faithful. As a reminder, what is a saint? A saint is not a person who's trying extra hard to impress God and give to the poor and deny themselves food or other things. 
A saint is not somebody who spent their life locked away in a monastery or convent. A saint is not a person represented by a statue in a cathedral somewhere. A saint is uh, not made by themselves. Nobody makes a saint. We don't make ourselves a saint, and no person or group can vote somebody into sainthood. What's a saint biblically? A saint is any person who's come to understand their total bankruptcy when it comes to keeping God's commandments. They've been broken by the law. They understand they deserve the full weight of His judgment and that they cannot change themselves. And of course, to such a person brought to that threshold, the Lord says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Anybody who's had their sins forgiven by God through Christ, by grace alone, plus nothing, as a free gift, is a saint. Now, what's said in these next verses applies only to them. I think it was McGee who said there's only two classes of people. There's the saints and there's the ain'ts. Which one are you? Which one are you? I pointed it out, but I'll do it again. Notice the tenses in this passage. We talked about that a little last time. Verse 3, hath blessed us. Verse 4, hath chosen us in Him. Verse 5, having predestinated us. Those are all past. Verse 7, in whom we have forgiveness. That's present possession. Verse 8, He hath abounded toward us. That's past. Verse 9, having made known unto us. That's past. Verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. That's past. Verse 13, ye were sealed. That's past. By the way, this is one of the many reasons why verbal inspiration is so critical to understand. The words themselves have been inspired and preserved even down to the tenses. Do you know that verb tenses in the New Testament can make the difference between real assurance of salvation and a total lack? They're that important. Friends, these are things, this list we just read, that God has accomplished. Listen, in the life of every single Christian person, without exception, no matter how mature or immature they are, no matter if they've been saved for 60 minutes or 60 years, these things are settled in heaven for good. They are irrespective of failure and frames of mind and feelings and mood swings. Somebody says, well, what about sin? Well, that's a good question. Sinful living affects the sense of these truths. But it does not affect the truth himself. It's like here's a guy riding through a national park on his motorcycle. It begins to rain. He's riding through the mud. And the mud splatters begin to cloud his vision. Then the sun comes out. He keeps driving and all of a sudden there's a hatch of mayflies. It may make the fly fisherman excited, but not a guy driving a bike. And all of a sudden he's got this thick, crusted, caked on film of nastiness right across his face. All the while, he's driving closer and closer to the mountains and he stops at a rest area and someone says, wow, what do you think of those hills? And he says, what hills? They wipe off the visor. Oh, those hills. That's what sin does to us. 
Friends, the mountains are still there. The truth doesn't change, but sinful living on purpose will affect your sense of the truth. It will affect your confidence. And by the way, passages like this lay the axe to the cursed teaching that a Christian person can ever lose salvation. The longer I study the Scriptures, the more I absolutely hate that false doctrine. Because what that ultimately does is cast the security of your salvation back on you. And friends, salvation is God's work start to finish. Uh, If you can read Ephesians and not think that, then I pity you because you're not listening to what what the verses are saying. Alright, now why, Paul? Why stop and bless the Father in heaven? Let's begin in verse uh, 3. Again, let's continue. He hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now that's a mouthful and a mindful. Let's break it down a little bit. Not just blessings, mind you, although there's plenty of those. Uh, Did you have clothes to wear this morning? Did you eat breakfast today? Are you healthy enough to be here? Do you own an automobile? Did you sleep in a bed last night under a roof? Are you sitting here in a free country where what we're doing is not yet against the law? Uh, Friends, yes, those are blessings, and there are plenty of those, but what he's emphasizing is spiritual blessings. Now I know in our culture... The word spiritual means, that's a word you throw out there when you don't know what else to say. If you're a politician or something, uh, spiritual is the realm of the imaginary that makes everybody feel better, but is worth uh, basically nothing. That is absolutely not what this is talking about. Friends, spiritual blessings are every bit as tangible as the chair you're sitting on and the food you ate this morning. They're every bit as real. But here's what he's talking about. Spiritual blessings are opposed to things which are perishing. There are things that moths do not eat through, and rust does not corrupt, and thieves do not steal. Blessings that cannot be embezzled or swindled away by identity thieves. These blessings are impervious to stock market crashes. They cannot be taxed by any government, and they can never burn down. And not just spiritual blessings. All spiritual blessings. Do you really believe that? Do you realize there's not a single promise that could possibly help you that God has not given? Not one. There's no armor you need that is not supplied. There's no perplexity you have that His Word does not touch. There's no sin you have committed that He is unwilling to forgive. The promises given to you as a Christian in prayer offered properly are literally limitless. The depth of fellowship that can be enjoyed with the living God knows no bounds. Friends, do you realize conviction of sin itself isn't so much a punishment as it is a spiritual blessing? It's God trying to keep you from being destroyed. 
Oh, I wonder if I asked you what's better, Novocaine or pain? Well, if you're about to have a tooth ripped out of your face, you might be tempted to say Novocaine. But let me challenge that notion for a moment. The same Novocaine that temporarily takes away the sense of pain also makes it possible for you to chew a large hole right through the side of your face and not even know it. Why? Friends, because pain is a blessing to keep you from being destroyed. Conviction is spiritual nerves. And when they get touched, they hurt because God does not want you torching yourself or chewing a hole in your spiritual face. Even that's a blessing. With God's spiritual blessings, we could obviously add to that list a great amount. This passage does so. There's no expiration date. There's no strings attached. There's no fine print. There's nothing missing or needing any improvement whatsoever. The spiritual blessings God gives are as infinite and pure and changeless as God Himself. And these blessings are in heavenly places in Christ. Remember, that's the theme of our verses for the year. Now, what does that mean? Oh, it means a lot of things. I like the way Schaefer put it. Here's what he said talking about that phrase, in Christ. To be in Christ, which is the portion of all who are saved, is to partake of all that Christ has done all that He is, and all that He ever will be. Friends, to be in Christ is to be as secure as He is. It's to be as loved of the Father as He is. It's to be as blessed of the Father as He is. I've often reminded people over the years, particularly those wondering about eternal security, and I'll tell them this, salvation is not in a place what you're telling me is when I get to heaven, I'll be past the finish line. And I would challenge that and say, my friend, the angels fell from heaven. Salvation's not in a place. It's not in a performance. Salvation is in a person, and His name is Jesus Christ. And if you are saved, you are as fully in Christ now as you will ever be. Period. Verse 4, these blessings are in keeping with the fact that He chose us before the foundation of the world. Friends, Bible-believing people need not run from or blush or apologize at the mention of the Bible teaching on election. I really wish sometimes the whole Calvinism-Arminianism debate could just be thrown out the window. Because both of those when taken to extremes, are positions where theology dictates your view of the Scriptures. Hyper-Calvinism and hyper-Arminianism are two opposing extremes, both of which neglect vast tracts of what the Word of God actually says. If you just listen to the text, it will box you in in a balanced position on these things. And I don't know that anyone is perfectly balanced but we can certainly avoid going too far down the road of extremes if we just pay attention to the inspired Scriptures. Friends, first of all, a right understanding of the doctrine of election or God-choosing does not produce arrogance. Not even close. Somebody who struts in like a banty rooster talking about God-choosing him doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. Friends, a right understanding of God choosing you produces worship and humility and thanksgiving and wonder. 
Secondly, election is a truth that belongs only to Christians. You never see the Bible giving the Gospel, come to Jesus if you're one of the elect. Never. Every time it is whosoever will may come. That is the offer of the Gospel. Forget the seeming contradiction. We're going to stick with what the Scriptures actually say. My mind can't reconcile it. You know that. I've said it many times. Election and free will are taught side by side throughout Scripture without apology, without contradiction. Hopefully some of you recall uh, this discussion we went through at length in Romans 9-11. through Where you see them taught side by side. In fact, you see two chapters on sovereign election with a chapter on free will unapologetically right in the center. And God does that absolutely on purpose. But friends, here's my point. During the trials of your faith, What is it that really helps? I hope it's not a confidence in the power of your choice in coming after God. Friends, let me tell you something. Your grip is very feeble. And you are very prone through relentless pressure to loosen your grip or let go entirely. Some of you would say experientially, you've been through times where you know if He was not holding you, you would have let go. What keeps us spiritually sane is not that we chose God, that He chose us. Remember the words in 1 Peter 1-2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now we're just going to touch on these quickly. My goal is not to stop and go through these in great depth. I want to walk through them with some speed. Uh, Remember what foreknowledge is. To know beforehand. But foreknowledge is not the same as omniscience. Foreknowledge is not the same as God knowing everything in advance. Foreknowledge is only mentioned of believing people. Foreknowledge is an intimate identifying knowledge you can trace all throughout the Scriptures. Like when God told the Jews, you only have I known. It didn't mean He's unaware of everybody else in the world. It meant He placed this identifying, electing knowledge on them and chose them for His own sovereign reasons. That's what that's talking about. So, election is based on God's foreknowledge. But the Word of God never gives us the content of that foreknowledge. You will never find a complete answer in Scripture for why God chose you. He's not going to tell you. And He doesn't have to tell you. I don't think we could even fathom it if He did tell us. And friends, we have to trust Him that no good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly, including understanding some of those mysteries. If it was beneficial for you to know, He would tell you. And since He does not, you can conclude it's not for you to know, at least right now. Remember the words in Romans 8.30? And by the way, the reason I say foreknowledge is not the same as omniscience, the Arminian position would say, well, God foreknew you. He knew in advance that you were smart enough to trust Jesus, and so He picked you to salvation. That is so disgustingly blasphemous, I don't even know what to say. That so misses the picture and places it back on man. No. 
What's the thrust of Romans 8.28? All things work together for good. How do you know that? It gives us the chain. Those that God foreknew, He predestinated. We'll talk about that word in a minute in the next verse. Every single one He predestinated, He called. Every single one He called effectually, He justified. And every single one that He justified, Romans 8.29, He said, He glorified, He treats it as past tense. Even though technically you're not glorified yet. Why did He do this? Not because of you and He doesn't tell you why. Friends, He simply declares that He chose and leaves us to worship Him in response. But know this, here's the point. From God's side, He came after you first. Before there was an earth, or stars, or the moon, or any angels for that matter, His eyes were on you. Chose us to what? To make you holy and without blame before Him in love. Friends, what that's talking about is an unchangeable position in eternal standing, enshrouded in God's affection forevermore. The word holy, sacred, pure, saintly, set apart. Uh, the word with, or the phrase without blame is really interesting. It means spotless or without blemish. It's the same phrase in Hebrews 9.14. It talks about Christ offering, offering Himself without spot to God. Somebody says, I can't believe that because I know what I am. There's no way I'm going to tell you I'm spotless. I don't even like calling myself a saint because I know my inconsistency. And I know tomorrow I'm going to fail. Friends, listen, when it comes to standing, a position before God, it does not matter how you feel about that. God declares of you, if you are a Christian, your position eternally before Him is holy and without blame. I mean, the day came in time when you were broken. Yes, you consciously put your faith in Christ, but friend, it was no surprise to Him. He only made you what He determined to make you before the universe even existed. Ran across the words of an old hymn that I think expresses it well. Here's what it says. "'Tis not that I did choose Thee, for Lord, that could not be." This heart would still refuse thee. But thou hast chosen me. How about verse 5? If you are a Christian, you were predestinated unto adoption. Now, predestinated is another 50 cent theological word, friends, that you don't need to run from. You know, it's a grievous thing that many of the Lord's people are almost scared of words like this because they think they're just cannon fodder for arguments, 
when the whole reason these are given is to cause you to burst forth in spontaneous praise. You know words like election and predestination are astounding possessions for the Christian. The very bedrock of our daily life. The word predestined in the Greek is pra aritzo. Pra meaning before or beforehand. Aritzo is where we get our word horizons. Hopefully some of you remember this also from Romans. So before horizons, what it means, the idea is determining boundaries beforehand. And I'll point out again, foreknowledge and predestination, both of those are only said of believing people. Only. This is a truth that belongs to Christians. If you are in Christ, friends, that means God has had your boundaries marked off for eternal good since eternity past. Why weren't you born in the third century? Or the Middle Ages? Or the Dark Ages? How about where you were born? How come, how come it wasn't Germany? Or some scientist outpost in Antarctica or on the moon? He marked off the boundaries of your family and who you'd be born into. The difficulties, the heartaches, the strengths, the weaknesses, the gifts, the abilities, the physical appearances. And when you would first hear about Christ, and for your part, yes, you sinned terribly, and you deserved eternal hellfire, and many of you here rejected Him time and time again, and you found comfort in your perverse activities, and you solaced yourself in false religion, and all the while your conscience was screaming out, guilty, 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 and you drowned out the voice within. That's your part. But even during the wilderness wanderings, there were barriers He would not let you pass. There were depths of evil He spared you from because one day He was going to make you a son or a daughter. And when you came and knelt at that cross, from your perspective, this was something new, but from His, He was expecting you all along. He had marked out your boundaries for adoption. And the word adoption doesn't so much carry the idea of finding a baby to take home. Uh, that word refers to the, the dignity, a, a position of fully mature sonhood. The boldness that comes from really knowing who your father is, and that will never change. Remember what it says in John 1.12? A verse before, it's talking about the Jews' rejection of Christ. But then it says, but as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. That word power means authority. He gave a position to them. He gave a boldness to claim and say, I am a son of the living God to every single one that believes in Christ. How about verse 6? He's made us accepted in the Beloved. Who's the Beloved? 
Well, I think it's obvious enough that he's speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 24, here's one of the things he prayed. Father, I will that they also... And by the way, this isn't just talking about the disciples. This is a continuity of those that believe in Christ. I will that they also, whom Thou hast given Me, be with Me where I am, that they may behold My glory which Thou hast given Me, for Thou lovest Me before the foundation of the world. What does it mean to be accepted? Here's one of the instances where modern English doesn't do us any favors. Uh, The word accepted in our culture might mean uh, tolerated. Some college students wait for weeks finding out if the college has accepted them. Uh, The college may have not even wanted to, but they may have done so anyhow. Uh, You go to the store and your debit or credit card is either accepted or rejected. Uh, Maybe if you were at work this week and your boss told you your project was acceptable. Uh, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't take that as much of a compliment. Uh, That to me subtly uh, implies that there's a whole lot more work that could have been done. That's not what this word means. Friends, when you are accepted in the beloved, it doesn't mean you're merely tolerated. That God is putting up with you. He really wants out of the contract, but well, there's those promises He made and I guess He has to keep them. Wouldn't want to lose the universe. It's sad how we think of God sometimes. Remember what the angel said to Mary? Luke 1.28 He greets Mary and He says, Hail, Thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with Thee. And maybe you've read that and said, Wow! Highly favored. Well, I guess Mary is pretty special. Do you know the same Greek phraseology between that highly favored is the exact same word when it says you have been made accepted in the Beloved. It's like the Lord's coming to you and saying, Hail, thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Friends, honestly, when was the last time you went to the presence of the Lord cognizant of the fact that the Lord Himself was filled with a holy joy to hear from you? Not because of all the things you've done, but because He has made you holy and without blame and placed you in Christ in love for good. Somebody says, but I failed. Well, confess your sin. But friends, though you grieve Him terribly, you cannot make Him stop loving you or desiring your highest good or being willing to forgive you. I mean, think about your life for a minute. Over here, you've got one timeline. And it goes from here as far as the eye can see into eternity past. And all through the length 
of that timeline which extends back beyond when time even existed, the Lord had placed His love infinitely on you that could never change. And then from here forward, here's another timeline. And there's you glorified in the heavenlies and the Lord is already there too, just like He's in the past simultaneously. And there in that entire timeline, you find His love is set upon you without fluctuation. And then here in the middle of those two, you have this infinitesimal speck called your earthly existence. Why is it you have such a hard time believing He looks at you that way for the speck? when you can accept He looks at you that way everywhere else. Do you realize there is nothing you can do, nothing you can do to make God not want fellowship with you? Somebody throws back, what about sin? Oh, sin will distance you from God. Sin will grieve Him, yes. But friends, the grief is an evidence that He wants fellowship with you and invites you to repent and come back. Sin doesn't make God not want fellowship with you. His holy character demands He be distant from it if you won't repent. But make no mistake, He's ready to forgive all the time. And He cannot be any other way. Our minds cry out and say, why? Why would God bestow such favor on somebody like me? Look at the end of verse 5. According to the good pleasure of His will. There's your answer. Because He is God and He determined that it should be this way. Period. Verse 6. How about that one at the end of verse 6? Or the beginning, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Oh, that's a Hebraism, a Jewish figure of speech. It occurs at the end, by the way, of all three of these sections. Verse 6, verse 12, verse 14, in some way or another. But friends, here's the meaning of that statement. He did this to cause us to praise and worship and adore Him for the uniqueness and the wonder of His grace the unmerited favor that He bestows on the vilest of sinners without any external reason whatsoever. God is never gracious because somebody or something outside of Him made Him that way or convinced Him to be that way. He is His own reason for everything He does. Period. Friends, the definition of grace that drags it out of God by something man does is a satanic perversion. When you knelt at that cross, figuratively speaking, and you put your faith in Christ, God did not become gracious at that moment. Your tears did not convince Him to forgive you. Your sadness did not make Him sad on your behalf. All you did was come the way He said to come and place your faith instead of in yourself and your own dead works. You put them in the substitute that He's provided and He took your sins away. It was God being just like He is. And He can never change. It's unfortunate that concepts like election and foreknowledge have caused heated division and debate and strife for centuries. Or they've caused feeble fallen minds that dare to arrogantly demand answers of God that He will not give, 
or even charge him with unfairness or unrighteousness. Remember, Romans deals with that too. God's answer to somebody arguing about his election is shut your mouth, creature. That's effectively what you find. Because I am God. Remember the beginning of this section? Blessed be God. These truths are intended to humble us in joyful, continuous adoration and praise and thanksgiving. If you're in Christ, I'm looking at some miracles here this morning. I'm looking at people who are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, who are called, chosen by the Father, who had their boundaries marked off in eternity past for sonship, who are now this very moment highly accepted in Christ in the presence of God. Yes, I'm looking at some amazing creations in Christ. Maybe you're sitting here and you say, honestly, I don't want to raise my hand. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to. And you say, I don't know if that's me. Friends, the message to you is not come to Jesus if you can or come to Jesus if He'll accept you. You have no reason to think He'll not accept you. There's one thing that makes God not accept sinners, and that's when they will not come to Him the way that He prescribes. Nobody will go to hell who did not reject Him. Somebody says, well, I'm just thinking about it. Friends, thinking about it is a position. Not believing in Christ is a position. It's a choice. Your eternity hangs in the balance. I don't think uh, J. Vernon, or not J. Vernon McGee, John Rice, I certainly don't agree with John Rice on everything. But I think the way he described this whole thing was a fitting picture. I've never forgotten it. Maybe you've read it. You've probably heard me say it. He said, the salvation of God is like a large door that says, whosoever will may come. And you walk through that doorway, and once you're inside, you turn around. And on the back side of that sign, it says, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Friends, that is security. Let's pray. Father, help us to feast our eyes on the spiritual view even partway up this mountain. I pray You'd give us a greater sense of what You've made us in Christ. Oh, that truly life and death and angels and principalities and powers and things present and things to come and persecutions and famineness and nakedness and peril and sword, none of these things can separate us from Your love in Christ Jesus because it's Your sovereign work start to finish. Help us, Lord, that know Christ to have a holy confidence that You will absolutely finish Your work. And though it's a great tragedy to stray from You, yet when this blink of life is over, 
fellowship with you will go on unhindered forevermore without exception. I pray you'd help us to walk with boldness in this world. Walking holy, yes. Putting off the old man, yes. But beneath all of that, because we know our feet are on solid rock, And that even when we fall, we fall right on to that rock. Give us a greater view of these blessings that we may praise and worship You like You deserve. In Jesus' name, Amen.